0: And so, Lord, if you give, if you take away, either way, may we say, blessed be your name, now and ever and unto ages of ages. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Finally, Job's long-awaited answer from God is here. He was yearning ever since the Satan came and took his health and took his wealth and completely obliterated his life. Ever since that moment, in chapter 3, when Job asked the questions, why, God? Ever since then, Job has continually asked and yearned for this audience with God. I just want an answer from him. I want to defend myself before him and show him my innocence. And he has been denied, denied, denied by the silence of heaven. And annoyed, annoyed, annoyed by the voice of his friends. And then finally, they stonewall each other. No one's willing to budge an inch. Silence, it demands a judge. Elihu steps in and says, I'll be your judge. And Elihu says, Job, you are miserable and you have sinned. When will you finally fess up? But while humanity will pass judgment on all of us, while the world will tell you what it thinks of you, God always gets the last word. And so now, God finally answers But there is one unexpected consequence to God's appearing in our lives. You will never be the same again. So tonight we reach the climax of Job, which means we reach the climax of the wisdom books. This is, in a sense, sacred ground. It is profound wisdom and maturity. (laughs) <laughs> tonight Job is going to teach us the highest level of wisdom in the College of Christ and is basically um, you might remember at the beginning when we opened Job we said spirituality says that health and wealth are good God blesses those who follow him but wisdom takes a whole different path wisdom is not about prosperity wisdom is about maturity and tonight Job reaches the ultimate level of maturity and wisdom it's humility Job discovers true humility. So, um, let's go. We already reviewed the book. So, let's uh, before, right before we go in, what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, I'm going to read without comment God's words to Job. These are very powerful, and we should just receive them as are. There will be a hundred questions, maybe primarily two: who is Behemoth? Who is Leviathan? Um, we will answer those after. So you can hold your anxiety a little bit. Um, I but before we do that, I want to give you a little outlay or over what am I outlook on what God says. So, first of all, there's two speeches. Basically, to round it off, chapters 38 and 39 are speech one. Chapters 40 and 41 are speech two. Two chapters, two speeches, two chapters per speech. Um, and both speeches follow the same outline. First, God answers Job out of the whirlwind. Second, God challenges Job, basically like, who do you think you are? And then to illustrate his challenge to Job, he will then third, show Job the creation. But there's a difference at this point. In speech one, God shows Job the visible creation, birds, rain, mountains, so forth. In speech two, God goes to another level and shows Job the invisible creation. We do know that there's both. For Colossians 1.16 says that Christ is the uh, through Christ God created both visible and the invisible. And then fourth um, is that Job will respond to God, and this also is different. After speech one, his response is mediocre. After speech two, his response is profound. So God is going to answer from the whirlwind. Let's get into this chapter thirty eight verse 1. Oh, before we do, imagine with me in your own personal life, try to step into a moment when you suffered, a moment when you had a trial, a moment when you didn't know what God was doing and you wanted an answer, a moment when you doubted God, when you questioned God, when you wanted an audience with God. I want you, if you've been there, to, for a moment right now, step back into that part of your life and feel, recall what you felt then as you hear God speak to Job out of the whirlwind. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb, when I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no further. And here... Shall your proud waves be stayed? Have you commended the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld. And their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of the deep been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of the deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this, where is the way, the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness? that you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war?" Where is the way to the place where the light is distributed? Or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is? On the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters became hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of Pelades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth Mazaroth in their season, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the waterskins of the heavens when the dust returns into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth? When they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey to whom I have given the arid plain for its home and the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes, or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great, and will you leave him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but, they, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young, as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear, because God has made her forget wisdom, and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane, do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him a rattle the quiver, the flashing spear, and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, aha, he smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock, he dwells and he makes his home. On the rocky crag and stronghold, From there he spies out his prey, his eyes behold it from far away. His young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there he is. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins, And his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him. Where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plant he lies In the shelter of the reeds in the marsh. For his shade, the lotus tree covers him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you, soft words? Will he make a covenant with you and take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put on him a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whoever is under whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off Leviathan's outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields shut up closely as with a seal One is so near to the other that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light. His eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils comes forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him, and immovable. His heart is hard as stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashings, they are beside themselves, Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On the earth, there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and speak. Hear, and I will speak. I will answer you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Out of the whirlwind... God often actually reveals himself in the Bible through a storm or through a cloud. Think of the tabernacle in the temple when God fills it. He fills it with a cloud. So thick, the glory of his cloud, that Moses in the tabernacle when it was dedicated and Solomon in the temple when it was dedicated could not enter the holy place. Out of the whirlwind, God answers Job Or in Psalm 18, David's thankful psalm in which he pens after God delivers him from near and sudden death. And throughout, he describes God's intervening in his moment of death as the God coming in a mighty storm. There's dark clouds, there's hail, there's thunder. Out of the whirlwind, God answers Job. Or in Ezekiel chapter 1, when Ezekiel gets his prophetic call, and has his first vision of the Almighty. We are told that he comes, the vision came with a stormy wind, a great cloud, and with fire flashing forth continually. Out of the whirlwind, God answers Job. It's as Mr. Beaver tells, uh, tells the, the children in the Chronicles of Narnia about Aslan. He says, Aslan, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so we see God answering Job out of the whirlwind. He is not tame. God doesn't come to Job's side in chapter 3 when he's calling out because God is not At our beck and call. He's not tame. God is not on our leash. He is not our pet. God comes when he comes. And he comes with his might and his glory. And we are never the same when he appears. So God is not tame, but he is the beast tamer. We have these two magnificent creatures described to us, the behemoth and the leviathan. And I couldn't wait to read about these. Um, of course, you know, a week only gives you so much time. But here's, here's how it was described to me growing up, and perhaps you've heard it similarly, that behemoth is a hippopotamus. You can see some descriptions that are similar. That leviathan is a crocodile, or that both of them are dinosaurs of some sort. Now, of all those options, dinosaur makes the most sense to me. However, these interpretations of behemoth and Leviathan are assuming that God's describing the visible world. I would suggest, and there is a growing consensus consensus of scholars who are saying the same, that this is God's describing the invisible world. Behemoth and Leviathan are not the visible creation. Now, you might say, but well, wait a minute, it says, like, he's on the mountains, he's in the marshes, he's doing this. People, you're talking about, like, can you, can you hook his jaws? Like, yes, because sometimes the invisible world manifests itself to us in the visible world. But that does not mean that it is simply the natural order. So another way to put it is, Leviathan and behemoth are not just part of the natural order, they're part of the supernatural order. Because um, consider for a second what God would want Job to see. Job's suffering. He has been suffering for months. He's undergone three painful debates with his friends. He's gotten no assurance, no sympathy, no empathy. Elihu has a chance, steps in, and he makes a disaster of everything. So much so that in my interpretation, he pretends to be a prophet. To really rub it into Job. So imagine this, okay? So Job's been yearning for God's appearing for months of misery. And then God shows up and says, oh, hey, cheer up, lad. I made a hippo. How does that comfort Job? Or, oh, I know you're suffering, but aren't you glad I made a dinosaur? Nothing in that interpretation can give any consolation to Job. And when a book is going through such a long conflict, such a long stretch of suffering, the climax better make it worth the wait. Don't you agree? I think God knows how to write a book pretty well. The climax needs to be more than, but elephants are cool. Therefore, I interpret behemoth and Leviathan as the embodiments of death and evil. These are beasts that Job has been wrestling with from the beginning. You might actually remember this. We foreshadowed it. Job has been foreshadowing it. There's these glimpses. But in chapter 3, he actually mentions Leviathan. Right after his first words, he cries out after suffering. There's seven days of silence and mourning. He's basically dead. But he then mourns. You might remember this. His happy birthday. In fact, what do we call it? Oh, yeah. Um, when darkness is your only friend. I almost called that sermon um, Wrestling with Leviathan. But then um, people voted. No one knows what Leviathan is. So I'm like, okay, fine. Um, <laughs> and Job 3.8, he says, Let those curse the day of my birth who curse the day who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. What he was saying there is let the let my birth be cursed in the same way that those who rouse Leviathan are cursing the world. Because when those who rouse up Leviathan, Leviathan is this embodiment of all evil and all opposition against God. And it's basically the picture of, well, Revelation calls it the beast. He rises up and curses the earth. It's doom. It's the Armageddon. It's judgment. It's the end of time. Job is saying, those who want to rouse up the destruction of the world, let them do that to the day of my birth. Let Leviathan come and swallow it up. So these creatures He's been wrestling with through the entire period of suffering. And it's perhaps proper to see that in the first two chapters, when God is with his divine counsel, all the sons of God are presented to him, giving account to him on how they're governing the world. When he comes to the Satan, remember the Satan is a title, not a proper name. It's a title. It's the role of this angelic being uh, who goes and tests the faith of humanity And God says, "So what have you been up to?" And then they talk about Job. Have you tested Job yet? Can I? But after that, the Satan touches Job's wealth; it's gone, including his family, gone. He touches his health. Job is in misery, physically and psychologically. And then Satan, so called, disappears. Or does Satan lurk in the dark shadows as behemoth, as Leviathan, as Job wrestles with the thoughts, as he wrestles with his doubts and his questions, and then God shows up and doesn't even give him the credit of a title, just refers to him as a creature, as a beast. And God asks Job, this was in chapter 41, about Leviathan, can you put him on a leash? Can you make him a pet for your? Daughters to play with? Of course not. He would devour your whole family. But the implication is, Job, you can't. I can. And Job, while you've been suffering, you need to know that you can't manage evil. But I do. There was not one thing that Satan could do to Job without God's permission. And we see in the first two chapters that he, the Satan, carries out only what God permits him. Nothing more. Leviathan shows up in Psalm 104, verse 26. Psalm 104 is a creation psalm of thanksgiving to the Creator. that praises God for all the many ways that he's working in the world. And there's this one striking verse that most of the time we look at and we're like, I don't know what that means, but it's cool. He then says, And Leviathan God made to play with. This is great sea monster. And there's all kinds of stories outside of scripture about sea monsters that are basically the embodiment of all evil and chaos and are seeking to destroy the world. And here the psalmist basically is praising the creator to such a degree. He says, And that terrible beast that no man can put a hook in his jaw, no man can tame, no man can attack, who laughs at armies of javelins ready to come and so-called pierce him, this Leviathan, this mighty creature, he created as a pet to play with in the sea. This is the might and power of the God who reveals himself to Job, that even death, even destruction, and even evil itself has No say without me. I can tame Leviathan. Now, if you're wondering why there's two different beasts... um, Uh, One scholar, very helpfully, and I I would actually agree, but it's a grain of salt, of course, because this isn't ultimately that important, but behemoth he sees as the embodiment of death itself and Leviathan as evil itself. So Leviathan is the Satan proper, and uh, behemoth is the embodiment of death. And of course, death and the devil work together so closely that they're they're often just, they're the same, one in the same. The devil is the lord of the realm of the dead, or was until Christ, but now we're getting ahead of ourselves. So um, these beasts are totally under God's control. That's what he's telling Job. But what we see in light of the New Testament is, yep, God's got them under control. We'll one-up that. Christ has conquered them. These beasts are not just under control. They are conquered by Christ. Um, Gregory the Great, uh, he's also known as Gregory the Dialogist. He's a sixth century, late sixth century. He was actually the uh, Bishop of Rome. I think the Catholic Church would call that a Pope. But either way, um, he he has a commentary on Job. And he, so he's one of the earliest commentaries I know of that is on Job. And he just said flat out, behemoth, Leviathan, they're the devil. That was his interpretation. So that's the earliest interpretation I'm aware of in the church. Um, And then he says this, though. It's beautiful. Um, He's commenting on 41, verse 1. And I want you guys to hear the verse because this is good. Uh, He says in 41, verse 1, God's asking Job, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? So this great sea monster, can you just like reel him in with a hook? No, of course not. But, Gregory the Great says, but this Leviathan was caught with a hook because when in the case of our Redeemer, Leviathan seized through his servants the bait of Christ's body, the sharp sting of his Godhead pierced him through for a hook held, as it were, the throat of its swallower when both the bait of the flesh appeared for the devourer to seize and at the time of his passion, Christ's Godhead was concealed in order to kill him. What's he saying? There was, there was a time when Leviathan was caught by a hook in the jaws Christ was the bait. Christ was the bait on the hook, but what Leviathan did not know was the hook underneath the bait. He took Christ. He had his minions crucify Christ, beat Christ, put Christ to death, but what he did not know is that when his greedy appetite swallowed Christ and brought him into his belly, the realm of the dead... Christ was the hook, the Godhead, the deity of Christ was the hook in the bait of his flesh, and it killed Leviathan. It defeated him. Now, he's still squirming around, but he's dead. He's defeated. The war is over. There's skirmishes waiting for the final cleanup, but it's done. Christ has judged Leviathan, and he is no longer to raise his ugly head. Actually, heads, by the way. Leviathan in Psalm 74 is mentioned as having multiple heads. And in Revelation chapter 12, nope, 13, you see the beast rising up out of the sea. Very likely an allusion to Leviathan. And he is wearing seven heads and seven crowns, right? Also, by the way, the beast um, that comes out of the sea also has a prophet that rises up out of the earth. Behemoth is described as an earth beast and Leviathan as a sea beast. So very likely that as John calls him monsters and beasts and dragons that he, um, he's thinking of Job and God's, God's vision of these invisible supernatural beings. Um, wow. Okay, so, so what Gregory the Great has said Hebrews chapter 2 confirms. This is Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children, that's you and I, the children share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise partook of the same things. He partook of flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so here we see our great God who says, behemoth and Leviathan, the embodiments of evil and death, pff, I'm over that. But now we have Christ who says, I've conquered those. They no longer, you don't have to fear Leviathan because the minute he lunges at you, the, ch- the chain around his neck is going to choke him and bring him back. The owner holding the the leash of a snarling German shepherd. Get back here, Hans. (laughs) He has no place. And so we've been liberated from that fear. Now, um, this is what is so important though. Christ has not overcome behemoth and Leviathan through their methods. He did not come and overcome death. Death. Killing it with violence. He did not fight evil with evil. The only way you conquer evil is by giving yourself up in selfless sacrifice. Because evil's greedy. Leviathan takes an innocent sufferer like Job, an innocent sufferer like Christ. And it is through that death that Leviathan is conquered. That's how Christ does it. This is, you guys might remember, um, On our Easter vigil, we first uh, recited these lines. And then for the next 50 days of Easter, after that, every week, we recited these lines from St. John of Damascus. Christ is risen from the dead. Do you remember this? Trampling down death by death and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. It's a beautiful, compact summary of what Easter is about. Through his death, he trampled down death. That's another way to say that by giving himself up, he humbled himself. And we know this in Philippians 2, verse 5 and on. There's this beautiful creed that Paul cites that the early church apparently already knew. And Paul is Paul citing this belief that they have it. Um, he, he, came, he became flesh and he humbled himself and became, serv- became a servant, became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. Through the Christ story, there's constant humility as he comes down to us and then he becomes a servant to us and then he not only submits to death, but he submits to the death of a criminal. Roman citizens were never crucified because only the lowest of the empire were crucified. It was the capital punishment of those who betrayed Caesar or who were slaves. Christ humbled himself all the way down to the belly of hell, where there he frees the dead from the tyranny of behemoth and Leviathan, from Satan, the devil, When God appears, we are never the same. Job is not the same. After God's speeches, humility is all that Job has left. He's lost his wealth, he's lost his health, but he has found maturity in the wisdom of humility. For this alone, humility is what can conquer Leviathan and Behemoth, the evil and the forces of darkness and Satan's hordes of demons in our lives. The only thing that gives us power over these is humility. Because humility is what Job has at the end. Humility is what we have every time we repent and say, repentance is coming back to God. That's all repentance is. It's not that first pagans need to repent. You see the signs and all pagans repent because God is coming. I repent. I, you need to repent every day. Every moment there are opportunities to repent because all repent means is to turn back to God. And our lives should be one of constant returning to God, returning to God, returning to God. So every day that I pray, I'm returning to God. Every time that I confess my sins, I'm returning to God. Every time that I partake in the body and blood of Christ through communion, I'm returning to God. Every time I turn to God for cleansing, I'm returning to Him. Every time I love my neighbor as myself or serve someone, I'm returning to Him. repenting and repenting is humility because repenting is saying i am so tired of my way i had my way figured out and then i found out that i was partnering with the demons whose way is their own way full on rebellion against the king of kings and lord of lords the god of hosts Humility and repentance. Leviathan cannot touch. For this is how Christ defeated him. This is how we have triumph in our homes, in our families, in our relationships, in our jobs, in our church. Wherever we go, the presence of Christ goes with those who walk in humility and return to him over and over and over and over. Praying under our breaths, remembering scriptures as the day goes, or as the battle gets hard, returning over and over and over. This is humility. This is wisdom. And Job, you notice, did you notice Job's first response in chapter, 30, or chapter 40, verse 3? Uh, you know, the first God shows him all like the created world. And he's like, oh, yep, I'll be quiet now. Basically, he's like, I'm in awe. Wow. And he just puts his hand over his mouth. But by the time God shows him the embodiments of evil and death, behemoth and Leviathan, the hand over the mouth has now caught his body, which is falling in prostration to the ground. This is the only response of those who see the appearing of God. No one stands. He falls, I'm assuming, on his face. It doesn't say that technically, but he says, I despise, this is 42, verse 6, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You don't get lower than dust and ashes and quite frankly dust and ashes is usually a euphemism for death. That's getting re- that's 6 feet under at least, right? He's getting as low to the ground as his soul and his body can get because what other response does a man or woman who has seen the appearing of the Lord give in return? I repent. I have found true wisdom. It is not what I know. It is not what I can accomplish. It is not what I control. It is not my mastery over the world like Lady Wisdom was first starting me on. It's not my wrestling with the tough questions of life like death, like Professor Vanity wanted me to wrestle with. It is this on my face, repenting in humility, prostrating myself before the one who has crushed the skull of the serpent of the mighty dragon, not so mighty dragon Leviathan. So brothers and sisters blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are those who'd rather eat dust and ashes than well i deserve the best <laughs> blessed are those who are willing to look at their lives and see i at the creation at the great creator and say i have none of this under control I thought I was running life well. And that's when suffering happens, right? It's when you realize you don't run life. That's when you suffer. And these are gifts. These are opportunities to graduate into the highest level of wisdom with Sage the Job and understand this is the full maturity of the Christian. It's humility. It is the mother of all virtues. It is where we start as Christ himself said, the kingdom of heaven, blessed are the poor in spirit. Wow, Lord, how do, we, how do we get there? Continually, brothers and sisters, turn from your way. Return to Christ over and over and over. And we don't do this and say, oh, <laughs> my man, so many other Christians aren't like me. I mean, I like got this returning to God thing down. I'm doing it multiple times a day. Watch it. The demons are tricky. They love it when you're there. You're returning to him recognizing that I'm a sinner. These sinners are the ones Christ ate with, not the righteous. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. All glory and honor and power and praise to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit now and ever and unto ages of ages.